Welcome back to a new episode of the Leading Yourself podcast. I'm so excited for today's podcast episode. This is the fourth time, if I'm doing my math correctly, that I have the privilege to have Scott Miller here on the podcast. We actually met through this podcast. I reached out to him when he was launching his book, Management Mass to Leadership Success. That's how we met. And since then, we have stayed in touch. He has become a role model and a mentor for me. And I am so excited to share with you this conversation that I had with Scott a few weeks ago in preparation for the launch of his new book, Master Mentors, Volume 2. This is probably one of my favorite conversations with Scott. Um, I love his energy. I love his stories and his so well thought takeaways from each of these mentors. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. And now enjoy the podcast and don't forget to grab a copy of Master Mentors Volume 2. If you're listening to this podcast episode as it's launching on October 3rd, this evening Scott is hosting at Master Mentor Virtual Summit, a completely free virtual event as a thank you note for anyone who grabs a copy of his book today. So go grab your copy, check the show notes of the podcast episode for more information. Enjoy the podcast and I will see you this evening at the summit. Welcome to the Leading Yourself podcast. This is your host, Carolina de Arriba. I'm an HR professional, health and fitness coach, wife, mom, and above all things, a goal getter. In this podcast, we're going to be digging into all things leadership, professional and career development, habits, and relationships. This is a podcast for those who want to become the best version of themselves. Those who have big dreams and are willing to embrace the journey and put in the work to achieve them. My goal is to share with you the tools, tips, and tricks to help you in your journey. So let's dig in into today's episode. Welcome, everyone. Um, I have the privilege to have for the fourth time the opportunity to interview Scott Miller. Uh, Scott has been a great role model and mentor over the last few years. He has inspired me in so many ways, um, the times that we had an opportunity to met, but also through his books. And today we're going to be talking about his latest book, Master Mentors, Volume 2. Um, if you haven't read Volume 1, start there and pre-order Volume 2. We're going to talk about that. This book is launching soon. And I have the honor to have Scott here to share with us some of the insights of the book. How are you, Scott? Oh, I'm honored to be here, Carolina. I'm a huge fan of you and of your podcast. I've followed your career the last couple of years and excited to watch your ascendancy in the, the organizational leadership of several companies. Thank you for the spotlight again today. Excited to talk about Master Mentors Volume 2. I'm just now starting to write Volume 3. That'll come out a year from now. Got some great people uh, featured in volume one, two, and three. So delighted to talk about the mentors today. Awesome. So let's start with, for those that haven't heard about Master Mentors, 
What? Is there anybody? Is there anybody left? Come on. <laughs> Let us know what what is this series about? What what is the what is behind this series of master mentors? Yeah, thanks for asking. So, like you, I'm privileged to host a weekly podcast. Uh, the one that I host is called On Leadership with Scott Miller, sponsored by Franklin Covey. It is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. It's about 7 million people each Tuesday, where, like you, I'm privileged to interview some remarkable people, whether they're best-selling authors or business titans or big celebrities. After four years and 230 episodes aired, uh, I decided that I needed to share some more of the transformational insights that these guests shared with me, oftentimes off-camera. Some of the best nuggets of the podcast, as you know, are in the opening two or three minutes when you're getting to know each other or when they finish and they share a great story off air. You're thinking, oh, my gosh, why didn't you share that? The guests, the listeners need to know this. So with their permission, I uh, wrote a first book called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. Harper Collins is the publisher, came out a year ago where I picked 30 people from the first year and wrote a book about them, Dan Pink and Seth Godin and Liz Wiseman and all kinds of great luminaries did really well, audio, video, digital, um, and print. I said video. There's a video book out now. Lit Lit Video Books actually has launched the book in video format. Go to litvideobooks.com. It's an amazing technology. And then it did so well that I decided to write 10 books over 10 years. So I have a 10-year plan. Master Mentors Volume 2 is out on October 4th, 30 New Mentors. 30 new insights. The only criteria is you had to have been a guest on the podcast that I host and said something profound. And so it's a little bit like chicken soup for the leadership soul. These are not good to great or built to last kind of books, right? Jim Collins would die, although I think he'll be in volume four, by the way, uh, interviewing him in a few weeks. But they're just easy, breezy books where I find something that, that the mentor said on the podcast. And I think, gosh, you know, I'll bet others would benefit from that. I'm going to write a story about that. I'm going to actually include the transcript, or I'm going to share a story of somebody else I know that is either struggling with or succeeding on implementing that insight. So uh, it's done well. I'm delighted to keep shining the spotlight onto the mentors, and I'm actually headed to Paris next week to give keynotes on it. I'll be in France all week, bopping around giving keynotes, and then to Croatia the week after that, and I'm delighted that it's internationally been a success. and. As long as people will keep reading it, I'll keep writing them. Awesome. I think that you might need to expand those 10 volumes beyond that based on the success that you've had so far. And I mean, not for any reason, but the On Leadership Podcast with Scott Miller, as you said, is the number one leadership podcast. And um, I send you a note this week because this week's as we are recording this, this week's podcast, where you interview one of the people that is highlighted in volume two at my lead was, has been one of my favorite interviews. And I want to start there because he is mentor number 30 on volume two, but this was on a previous episode when he was on your podcast and now you've had him for the second time. Yeah. So I want to start by asking if you were to rewrite volume two, or if Ed Millet comes up in a future volume of Master Mentors, would you have picked a different takeaway than the one that you picked on the book? Oh, what an interesting question. So 
Uh, I'm trying not to repeat mentors in the series, but I'm giving my permission to, you know, have someone make a reappearance, but I haven't gotten there yet because there's so much great content. You're right. I've had Ed Milet on twice. Remarkable human being. Generous, tender, kind, smart, funny, vulnerable, self-effacing, transparent, hardworking, motivating, fatiguing in his energy, all positive things, right? I'm a raving fan. He's been very kind to me as well. The insight that I share in the book, you're right, it's from the first interview, not the second interview, but I wouldn't change it because the story is hilarious. His telling of it is like uh, uh, life-changing. And in essence, you gotta buy the book to read the story. But in essence, it's how Ed once bought a car on top of a car. He bought a Velcroed car known as a kit car. And he shares this hilarious story. In fact, better than actually reading the story is watching the interview with Ed. In fact, on the back, as, as, your, leader, as your listeners may know, whenever I write a book, I create a card deck, a card deck of all of the actual mentors. And I actually give these cards out whenever I speak. If any of your listeners or viewers want a copy of the card deck, send me a message in LinkedIn and give me your shipping address. I'll mail you a free deck of cards. But Thank on the you. back of each of these cards, is the QR code that takes you to the episode. So I strongly encourage you to hopefully read the book, but uh, watch the episode of Ed Milet from like a year and a half ago. You will die laughing, but then you'll also take away the insight. You know, what's Velcroed over in my life? I think the way that Ed tells it, he tells it in a very transparent way. It's a riotously funny story and it's kind of sad. It's kind of, you know, perplexing. Like, why did you do that? But if you're introspective, we've all done some similar things. Maybe you didn't buy a car Velcroed onto another car. Yes, I said Velcroed on, not welded, not glued. But no, I would not change the inside. I think it is, it has really, I think Ed continues to reinforce that vulnerability is a leadership competency. That transparency is a leadership competency. And the more you can, the more you can channel your own self-awareness into a teaching tool for others, changing lives. And Ed does that masterfully well. Yes, and he's a great storyteller. I mean, and he the is, passion that. that he has is, um, I was listening to this last episode that you did with him and oh my God, you could feel that passion yeah. going through, through. I was listening, I did not watch the video, but I can't mm -hmm. imagine what the experience is if you're watching it in video, but. I, I've listened to, I, I don't ever listen to the videos or watch them after I write them or after I um, tape them. I'm not opposed to it, I just don't have time. But I've listened to the interview twice because he has a very unrelatable journey to mine, but a very relatable journey to millions about being raised and talking about his father was an alcoholic and a drug addict and that Ed had to learn early in life in elementary school, which version of his father was going to come home. You know, was his father going to be drunk or stoned or mean or angry or happy? And it was a coping skill. And now that's turned into a, a leadership skill on how to read people and how to understand people's securities and their strengths. And I found it very touching. The interview is, is very, like you said, he's a very, he's a great storyteller, but he's also, he's willing to use his life's journey, ups and downs, to help other people relate to it, feel validated, and then almost like use it as rocket fuel to make change. Yeah, can't agree more. I'm delighted you highlighted Ed Milet. Yes. Um, another one of my favorite mentors that you highlighted on the book 
is Marie Forleo. I have to say that when I read her book, Everything is Figureoutable, that year, that was probably the highlight of the year in terms of books. That was my favorite book when it came mm. out. And I think also you did a great job interviewing Marie, but can you share a little bit of, um, of the highlights of your interaction with Marie? Yeah. yeah. You know, Marie's chapter probably is one in hindsight, that I wished I would have written more about Marie. Uh, I don't think I shortchanged her. Because by the way, the chapters aren't all about the mentor. It's about an insight that I learned from them. And I might choose to pivot in a different direction. And in some cases, I do. Uh, I did have some reviewers reviewers of the book say to me that they'd wished I'd written more about Marie. But nonetheless, Marie is a master mentor. In fact, I will tell you, Carolina, of the 220 episodes that I've aired, I've taped about 250, where we're usually about four or five months out. Marie was the most beautifully spoken of all of my interviewees. Just an amazing vocabulary, great diction, uh, uh, pacing. She's, just, uh, she's a remarkably powerful communicator. Mm -hmm. She was correcting me. I, I was searching for a word and she was handing it to me and I'm not usually short on words. So like you, I'm a raving fan of Marie Forleo, her book, which by the way, I think has a phenomenal cover and covers are very important in selling books. It's a photograph of her and she's, you know, quite easy on the eyes, you might say. Uh, her book really is about using your resourcefulness and your initiative. Dr. Covey, Franklin Covey's co-founder, where I worked for 25 years, the author of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he used to have a phrase that he called your R and your I. Use your R and your I, your resourcefulness and your initiative. And the same way, it's a similar thought to Marie's concept of everything is figureoutable, is that no matter what problem you have, now there might be an outlier. You might have stage four prostate cancer and you can't survive it, and that's not figureoutable. But what is figureoutable is how you're going to spend your last days, how you're going to fix your legacy, how you're going to repair some relationships. So I don't want to, I don't want to speak to the extreme outlying situations. However, some vast percentage of things we face in life are in fact figureoutable. If we use our resourcefulness and our creativity, if we use our initiative, if we ask for help, if we are humble enough to say, hey, you know what? I behaved myself into this mess. I can't talk my way out of it. I have to behave my way out of it. So Who I learned- does that remind me to? I know, huh? I know. Stephen Covey quote. I, I have great respect for Marie's tenacity, her fierce focus on achieving her own goals. One of the things I took away from Marie is whenever she has a goal, she writes it down a hundred times on paper. I did that in the third grade. I will not talk in class. I will not talk in class. I will not talk in class, right? Uh, different concept. But Marie writes down her goals a hundred times on a piece of paper every day until she accomplishes it, until she figures out how she's going to get this done. And the concept really came from her mother, who I believe might have been a single parent and needed to fix the roof and needed to patch walls and needed to fix faucets and radios and things like that. And her mom said to her, "Hun, everything is figureoutable, especially when you have no one else to figure it out for you or no one else to solve it. So it's something I think I'm actually quite good at is using my resourcefulness and my own initiative. I'm also, for as big of a public ego as I may have, I'm also very open to ask for help. I'll tell you, I don't know how to do that. I'm willing to learn how to do that, but I need help. Tell me about that. I don't know about that. Explain that to me. And I think that's an insight that Marie has reinforced in Master Mentors 
in her podcast interview and in her book. I wish she would write more. Maybe she is. Yes. Um, and she's a great like dancer. I don't know why, but she's like all of her social media, not all of it, but she's like a great like hip hop dancer. The skill yeah. I wish I had. My boys would think I was cooler if I knew how to hip hop dance like Marie Forleo. I'm sure my kids would too, because <laughs> dancing and I, we don't get me well either. Me either. <laughs> I will dance. I just can't. <laughs> yeah, same here. And to their horror, I have three sons that are eight, 10, and 12. To their horror, their dad does dance. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I want to highlight a few more people that you highlight in your book. Um, and I love one key takeaway on the book that I really like was Sean Covey on the difference between Ooh. self-worth, self-esteem, yeah. and self-confidence. I think yeah. that was pretty insightful. Can, can you talk a little bit about the difference between, the, a lot of times, we use these as synonyms. We right, as right, interchangeable. Right, Can you right. span a little bit on on this key takeaway that you learned from him? This is why you and I have so much in common because you and I both found this fascinating. And I wasn't sure if anybody else would find it fascinating. So I took a risk because I found it remarkably helpful in the hopes that others might as well. To quote you, we often use these words as synonyms, as interchangeable. Self-esteem, self-confidence, self-worth. And I write a story about how, I don't know, 15 years ago, Sean Covey, who, of course, is the author of the mega hit, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens, and like five other books, he, he was just sharing in passing once the stark differences between self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-worth. And I won't go into all of them today, but here was the big aha for me, was that self-worth is very different than self-esteem and self-confidence, that your self-worth is creator-given. If you're religious, then it's your God. If you're not religious, then it's whatever force you believe created you and it's why you are here. That your self-worth is inherent. No one can diminish it. No one can take it away. No one can really strengthen it. It is just inherent. We all have the same self-worth. Now, we might have different self-esteem and different self-confidence levels. And those can be um, burgeoned and diminished by outside people or by ourselves. But I just found it really helpful and validating to separate those three things, self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-worth, and recognize that you and I have the same self-worth. Whether we're feeling intimidated, whether we're feeling on top of the world, whether we're feeling invisible, whether we're feeling seen or unseen, we have the same self-worth. And that was a message that I just wanted to like shout from the mountaintops to say, hey, Separate your self-esteem and your self-confidence. They're going to be low sometime. That's okay. That's called being human. Those things come and go like seasons. You're going to have high self-esteem and low self-esteem and high self-confidence and low self-confidence. But let me remind you, your self-worth is creator-given, and no one should strengthen it or deplete it. It is because you are. I'm not an especially intellectual or philosophical person, but that just like hit me right square in the face. And it helped me to be less insecure in certain meetings, around certain people, in certain settings. You and I have the same self-worth. I don't care how big of a celebrity you are or how many episodes you have on television or how many hundreds of millions of dollars you had last year. Your self-confidence might be higher. Your self-esteem might be higher. 
Your followers on Twitter might be bigger, but we have the exact same self-worth. So I was delighted to hear you talk about that. And if you want to read the book for your listeners and viewers, we go deeper into a little bit of what is self-esteem and how do you build that and what is self-confidence. But I think the big aha is what I said is your self-worth is inherent. Yeah, that for me was also a big aha. I'm delighted. I never saw it from that perspective. And I think it also helped me. I think in today's world that we're so focused on DEI, right? We talk about DEI. I mean, I work in the corporate world and it's it's an everyday thing, right? Everything we do, we look through the lens of DEI. And I'm like, this is such a powerful uh, realization, right? If you go into any interaction with anyone, knowing, being 100% certain that you have the same self-worth as everybody else, or that anybody else has the same self-worth as you, then how much more inclusive we would be in any setting that we are. Carolina, I've probably taped 75 podcasts around the world for this launch of this book. You are the first person I'm going to share this with, and maybe the only. When I came to Sean Covey, gosh, nine months ago, and said, hey, Sean, I'd like to include you in Master Mentors. He's like, yeah, what, what did I say? Nothing. I said, no, no, no. He actually said something profound. I told him, he says, you know, I don't even remember saying that. He says, I don't know that I have enough to say on that. I said, Sean, you did. Just by framing them separately was enough. There wasn't. So he actually didn't have a whole lot more context behind it. And he was actually nervous about me including it. He kept kind of scratching his head thinking, Scott, I don't think it's that transformational. And I said, Sean, I don't think you have to say much more about it to make it transformational. I think you're going to give a gift to some people just when they hear that their self-worth is the same as everybody else's. Now, go work on your self-esteem and your self-confidence. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Sean Covey, for letting me share that inside track. <laughs> Okay. Um, a few more that for me, I, I haven't finished reading the book. I have to say that I jumped back and forth. And I think that's one thing that I love about all of your books, but master mentor series, especially is that every chapter is a mentor. So you can pick and choose what mentors to read yeah. or which ones to go back to. Yeah. Um, another one that um, I listened to the podcast as well. And as a result of that, I bought the book was Bobby Herrera, um, uh, the author of The Gift of Struggle. And in the book, you share the transformational insight that each of us holds the potential to be a transition figure in someone else's life. And that reminds me when I took the seven habits of highly effective people training for the first time, there was this video um, in an African country. I can't remember the country, but this was many years ago. Uga and I Uganda. still remember it was U it was Uganda. Uganda. Yes, this uh, guy that was a soccer That's coach, right. Stone. Right? And he Stone was somebody is his name, yeah. A transition figure. Can you explain this concept and talk a little bit about the insights from this particular movie? Yeah. yeah, again, this is why I like you so much because we're on the, on the same wavelength. I was hoping you would pick Bobby Herrera. Uh, he is my probably favorite mentor in the book. He's number two or 32 because I, I, I number them in succession. So he's number 32. Bobby Herrera is Mexican by birth, American by choice, served in our military. He's a veteran of our company. 
Uh, he's become a very uh, successful entrepreneur. And he wrote a book called The Gift of Struggle. I highly recommend the book. It's a small book. You can read it in an hour and a half. And basically, without giving away the entire book or the chapter of the story, my favorite chapter, Bobby Herrera was born, I think, in maybe a family of nine kids, seven or nine kids, a very humble means, right? An immigrant family in Texas scratching out a living. And he and his brother used to play college or high school football. And every night on Friday night, when the team would go in the team bus to go play high school football, after the game, the bus would always pull up to a restaurant and everybody got off and had dinner. Except for Bobby and his brother, because there wasn't money for cleats and dinner. So his mother would pack he and his brother a, a, a bagged dinner, a lunch, a bagged lunch. And Bobby and his brother stayed on the bus. I'm gonna get I'm gonna cry because I can't tell the story without crying. But every Friday night, Bobby and his brother would stay on the bus while the rest of the team went to dinner. Not Bruce Chris, but like Sizzler. You know, and this is not a, a big dinner. Could have been McDonald's. And it's just he knew. He, just, he knew this is what we did. My brother and I stay on the bus. We eat our bag dinner, and the best of the team goes in and has dinner, and they have a blast, and they come back, and that's my lot. Until one night, one of the fathers of the students came back on the bus and said, I want you two to come to dinner. I'm paying for your dinner. I want you to be part of the team. No one needs to know. And all I ask is that you pay it forward to someone else in your life. I don't know exactly why, this hits me so emotional because I was actually raised in a upper kind of class family with, with, you know, with, with not vast resources, but, you know, we had everything we needed and most of what we wanted. But this story was so compelling because Bobby Herrera says it was the first time in his life he ever felt like he was seen by someone. Someone saw him. This man was a successful businessman in town and the father of one of the teammates. And they went to dinner and came back. And Bobby said it was transformative in his life. He felt invisible in the world up until that point. Fast forward 30 years, Bobby goes on to have an extremely successful entrepreneurship career, writes this book called The Gift of Struggle, finds the father 30 years later, calls him up. His name, I believe, was Harold Teague, invites him to his book launch, flies him in. Bobby has like hundreds of people at his book launch. Unbeknownst to the gentleman, he shares this story 35 years earlier. Not a dry eye in the house. Everyone gives Harold Teague a standing ovation. Harold Teague flies back home, calls up Bobby Herrera and said, I remember that day. I had no idea the impact that this had on you. And I'm emotional about it because I think this is the legacy of leaders, right? Whether you're formal and for this is the legacy is who, who are you making feel seen today? It might just be turning around and putting your hand on someone's shoulder and saying, you know what? I like you. You're a good person. Or it might be giving someone specific advice. I love the way you organize all of your data in pictures so that all of us can understand it super easy. The extra effort you take is a remarkable genius you have. Or it might simply be, I love your dedication to your family. You're, you're, you get the point. Is all of us have been, all of us, someone made us feel seen and your job, damn it, is to go make someone else feel seen as well, as many people feel as possible. So I love Bobby Herrera. He's my favorite chapter in the story. I hope you'll buy the book and read it. I hope you'll buy his book. The idea is to become a transition figure, and it could be as small as walking back on the bus and saying, I'm going to pick up the tab at the Sizzler, and no one needs to know. Thank you, Carolina, for having the thoughtfulness to highlight that one today.
Yeah, I have to admit that I did did cry when I listened to that particular episode of your podcast. And it put a smile on my face when I saw it on the book, because I think a lot of times we believe that we need to have the power, we need to have the position, we need to have the means to be a transition figure, to make an impact in others. And in this case, the, the this gentleman did have all that, but you don't need it. You can make someone feel seen and value and heard. You don't need to have anything, no position, no financial status, nothing. Like you have the opportunity to do that every day. And I think- And you don't need to agree with them. Right. You you, You don't need to agree with someone to validate them. And I've learned that. I don't cry much on podcasts unless the host asks me about Bobby Herrera and then I lose it every single time. <laughs> I'm delighted well, you picked him. I think the the same takeaway from this story, I heard as well on your last interview with Ed Milet and his first grade teacher, right? Like, yes. I think we all have someone in our lives. If we think about it, if we go back in time, there has been that person that really made us felt seen and valued and appreciated. And, you know, this week I was doing a session on on mentoring for a group of mentors inside the company where I work um, on some tips on, on mentoring. And I started the session by saying, remember that one mentor in your life, right? It might have been five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Now imagine that the people you're about to mentor are gonna be sitting here five, 10 years from now saying, because of you, I am here. Because of you, I made the right choices. Like we all have that opportunity. And sometimes we underestimate the power we all have to make that impact on on someone. Yeah, mine is a man named Chuck Farnsworth and he knows it. I tell him frequently uh, that he was my Harold Teague. He made me feel seen and it was probably I met Chuck when I was probably 27 or so. Well, um, you started um, our conversation today. You mentioned that you're not afraid of asking for help. And I think that was another key takeaway in your book from, um, I can't remember the number, but Taria Taria Pitt. And I would like for you to speak a little bit about this one because I know this is one that you personally relate to and you're you you're not afraid of asking for help when you need for help but I think she also has an amazing story um that when I've seen the video outside of your podcast the video of her story I also cry when I see it so I'm sorry if I'm picking all the ones that are going to make you feel emotional today but I think this one is worth highlighting as well. You know, it's funny you're picking because, you know, I have in these books, you know, household names, celebrities and CEOs and such. And there's people who survived airline jet crashes, right? Masad or um, Zafar Masood, the first mentor, is the CEO of a Pakistani bank. And he fell out of a plane and survived. One of only two people of 100 apparently who died. Taria Pitt is Australian, and she was very normal like you and me, right? She had a family, and she was an engineer, 
and she was just starting to run ultra marathons. She had a very normal life, no celebrity, no remarkable breakout talents or that she talks about at least. And then she got caught in a horrific uh, brush fire that just like swept up this marathon. It came in this, 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 um, like this crevice of a mountain and she couldn't go forward and she couldn't come back and wasn't quite sure what to do and decided to run up a hill. We all know that fire actually moves upwards faster and she got burned over the vast majority of her body. I'm showing a picture of her right now on screen. I don't know if you can see her, but a lovely woman, highly well-educated. Long story short, I cannot relate to her journey. She had a near life ending burn experience. The recovery was you know, nothing short of horrific. She's gone on now to be a worldwide change agent and transition figure in lives, writing and speaking and podcasting and keynoting. And she's lovely and attractive and remarkable and she glows. And she's been horribly disfigured, right, from this, this accident. And she and I had a very tender conversation when people come up to her, like, and they ask her what happened to her. How does she deal with that? And when kids stare at her, we had a really vulnerable conversation around, you know, how how so many of us make decisions and judge people on how we present ourselves, the clothes we wear, the, our haircuts and our skin, all that. And she was so generous talking about her view on that. But the big transformational insight simply is how easy is it for you to ask for and accept help? And maybe for some listeners and viewers and readers, this won't be a transformational insight, but I, I highlighted Taria because it was difficult for her to asked for help in the hospital with physical therapy and she wanted to get back and, you know, get back into her life again. And then the story I tell after her is how common it is when people that I hire, when they end up flaming out or being asked to leave the company, there's a high correlation and their ability to either ask for help and leverage existing resources and mentors and coaching versus, I don't know, I'm okay, I'm gonna just do it. And they sit in their office and they basically write their termination letter. They don't know it though, because they're like these lone wolves. They they're, they're, they're don't have the humility gene. They're way too confident and arrogant. And I just think Taria is such a great example of no matter where we are in our journey, whether you're the board of directors, chairman, or the CEO, or a division president, or perhaps you're just a stay-at-home parent and you need some help. Hun, I need you to help with the laundry tonight. Hun, I don't know how to put together this Ikea desk. It's kicking my ass. Can you help me put together this damn Ikea desk? It's crushing me. I think it's a great transformational insight to say the most successful, the most effective people are those who are willing to say, I don't know about that. Teach me. I don't know how to do this. Can you help me? I'm struggling alone on this. Can you help me? And I think the most successful salespeople, the most successful Business associates are those who are willing to say, I got talent, I got skills, I got confidence, but you know what? Why should I reinvent everything? Why should I go figure it out on my own when someone else right next to me has done this 40 times? Come on over, teach me. That takes a level of humility that not a lot of us have. You know, too often we hear people say, oh, I've got 30 years of experience. Yeah, you have got one year of experience, probably repeated 29 times. Yes. And that's both funny and insulting. But I hope this particular insight reminds people the correlation between impact and effectiveness and just saying, I need help. Including yeah, if you've I got think... something going on, a mental health challenge, some anxiety, a drug addiction, you're lacking um, 
the willpower to lose or gain some weight or muscle mass, or perhaps, you know, you're finding that your mental acuity is not as strong. I mean, at some point, all of us are going to move into dementia of some form. You live long enough and your brain is not going to be as tight. And I'm telling you, I'm speaking to some of you that are approaching perhaps some lessened, um, you know, mental veracity, mental capacity. We're all going to move there. I'm not as sharp as I was 20 years ago. I worry about this, right? I worry about, you know, sometimes I miss words. I don't think I'm moving into dementia, but you get the point. I mean, you know, our lives aren't as sharp as we, we were we were younger. And sometimes I think it's valuable if you think you're struggling with something, go to a confidant, whether it's your spouse or your best friend or your rabbi or just, a, you know, someone you trust would say, I need some help. If someone asks me for help, it's almost impossible for me to say no. That takes a ton of courage right there. I think for me, you know, I was the type of person um, when I started my career that I thought I needed me. I didn't need any help or if I needed, I should have not. I It wasn't a good idea to ask for help because that will put me in evidence that I didn't knew yeah. or I wasn't good right. enough or... Right. Um, it shines until, the spotlight on your incompetence, right? Or such. Exactly. Until one day, someone asked me for help. And it felt great. And then I realized, you know, when you're asking for help, don't think about yourself. Don't be selfish when asking for help. Think about you're giving someone the opportunity to share what they know, to feel seen, to feel appreciated for what they know, for the fact that they can help you. Uh, because as you said, I mean, when someone comes to you and asks for help, rather, it, it's very rare that you would say no, right? You feel like important, you feel seen, you yeah. feel value yeah. because you can add value to someone else. And that yeah. shift in my mindset was what changed everything for me around this topic. In fact, I, I find when someone asks me for help, I'm usually a little bit jealous of their courage. I think, wow. You're asking me to teach you how to read a PL and you're 40 and you don't know yet. But I'm kind of, I'm not thinking about the fact that you can't read a PL. I'm thinking about A, you trusted me in a fairly, you know, kind of embarrassing situation. So I'm never going to sell you out ever. And B, that took some courage to come to anybody and say, teach me how to read a PL at the age of 30 or 40, whatever it was. Not everybody can read a PL. I couldn't read a PL until I was like 32. I didn't know what P&L stood for. And so I find great, I'd say envy and jealousy, because I think there could be healthy envy and healthy jealousy. I find jealousy in the courage it takes for people to ask help. I mean that in a positive, uh, energy-infusing way. Yes, totally agree. Okay, we are reaching the end of our time together, and I have so many other people that I want to highlight, but I want to ask you, is there anyone, any of the mentors in the book that I haven't asked you about that you would like to highlight their, their insights that you're like, if people have to walk with something, this is the one that I want to share. Yeah. The remaining 26 of them, <laughs> um, you know, there's so many, I'll come back to number one, number 30, one. 31, Zafar Masood. You don't know who Zafar Masood is. He is the CEO of the Bank of Punjab. It's a, it's a bank in Pakistan. And Zafar had had a great career, single, never married, never had kids, was um, on a very standard flight from 
um, Karachi to another city in Pakistan. I forgot, I should remember. And uh, long story short, that, that like a one hour flight, you know, like, like, you know, like Boston to DC kind of thing, right? Quick flight, did it a thousand times. Always sat in the same seat. The airline miss sat him at a window seat and he always wants to sit in 1B. So he gets to the airport, he moves his seat from 1A to 1B where he wants to sit. Long story short, the plane crashes. The airline takes off, gets him to, to land. The pilots forgot to lower the landing gear. They land, destroys the plane. The plane takes back off, comes back around, loses its jet, and it crashes into a neighborhood in Pakistan. 98 people die. Two people live. Zafar is one of them, has enormous survivor's guilt. The story is the plane broke apart. He fell out of the plane, strapped into his seat upright, fell from the sky, hit a roof, slid down the roof, alive, unconscious, on fire, upright, slides down the roof, off the roof, and lands on the on the hood of a parked car at like six in the morning. The car is occupied with two guys going to work. The windows blow out of their car as they're getting ready to turn it on. They're like, what the? They look at the front and there's a guy sitting in an airline seat on fire on their hood. I'm not making this up. While airline debris is falling out of the sky, buildings are on fire, the neighborhood is inflamed, they save this man. And the whole story is around, so what's next? Now, what do you do if you've fallen out of the sky, upright, hit a roof, slid down, hit a car, you're on fire, people save you, they take you out of the neighborhood, they save your life, and you live. So what now? Now, I hope that no one listening or watching this has to go through that experience to really ask yourself, so what now? What's next? And so the whole chapter is about what's next in your life? Is it going to take that for you to get clear on your values, on the things that are important to you in life, on how you spend your time, how you spend your money, who you love, who you apologize to, who you propose to, who you forgive? It's a great chapter. It's number 31's first chapter. You got to read it because I've only told about a tenth of the story. It's amazing. Yes. I'm sorry you asked because you know I was going to go on and on and on, but thank you for asking. Yes. Um. I mean, I was reading this and I'm like, this sounds like a fig, like a fiction book, right? Like, how can this even be possible? And it's I all think- true. It's all documented. It all happened about, about two and a half years ago is right, right, right. Um, kind of during the peak of the, of the pandemic. And for me was like, why as human beings, we're always waiting for that life-changing event yeah to really get our dogs on a road and, and question and, and ask ourselves the tough question right of what is next what what is my purpose what what am I doing what is important and um a lot of times to look back with regret on some of the choices that we've made um instead of doing it without that sense of without the sense of urgency right it's like if I look at the the um, time matrix, right? For him went from a quadrant two to a quadrant one. And uh, why are we not able to do it without the push of 
some life-changing event. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The, uh, the story that I share very quickly in the book, I know our time is ending is, uh, my, my story doesn't compare to his, but my oldest son came home with a school assignment a year ago. And in the school assignment, he was asked, what are your family traditions? My son wrote down something like, we go to church, we go to brunch, we watch movies. And I thought, oh my gosh, those aren't traditions. Those are activities. Those aren't traditions. Traditions are we go to the beach every Sunday or every you know summer for a month, or we hike on Christmas Eve and find an elf and make. I mean, I'm like, I don't know. You know, there's a fine line between activities and traditions. You know, viewers give me some latitude. But I left and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not creating traditions for our family. I had to think about, so what does that mean? And for me, an activity might be a tradition for somebody else. You could, you know, it's a nuanced definition, but it really got me thinking. I only have so many years left when our sons are home and happy with me as their dad and think I'm still cool when I don't dance. Zafar really got me thinking about what's next in my life. And so my wife and I are hopefully on the hunt for more traditions that our boys will build security around and maybe even create in their own families should they choose to have one. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks, Carolina. Thanks for a great interview. You are such a great host. You're the perfect balance of sharing your own insights and teeing your guests up for way too long answers. Uh, delighted to come back today on your podcast. You're a class act. I uh, love to have you over. You know that, Scott. Um, I am so grateful that we crossed paths. Um, you know, talking about asking for help, I remember that the way we met, I sent you a message on LinkedIn saying, hey, I read your book. Do you want to be on my podcast? The one that no one knows about. And you jump in. And since then, um, I've learned so much from you. And as I said, you're a great role model for me. I told you this before, when I grow up, I want to be the next Scott Miller. Um, well, thank you I, so I, much I, for being on the podcast. It's my honor. I, I'm delighted that we're friends. I'd love to come back for Master Mentors Volume 3. There are some amazing guests that are appearing in it. Adam Grant, Ariana Huffington, Mel Robbins, James Clear, Robin Sharma, Emmanuel Acho. There's an amazing list coming in volume three. I hope everybody will uh, stay tuned for the whole series. I mean, I love volume one. I love volume two, Thanks. but that list of names sounds like it's going to be my favorite so far. Oh, volume three is going to crush it. You're going to love it. It's going to be amazing. And before we leave, talking about mentors, not master mentors, but I saw a post the other day that yeah, in a little yes. bit less than a year, you're, you're already announced one of your next books. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because there is some overlap with this, at least the word mentor. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I thank you. I, I have a book coming out in June, June 6th, I think it is 2023. Uh, we're still working on the title, but basically, it's sort of the ultimate mentoring guide. I've identified 15 roles that mentors play and, men and the roles they don't play. So really it's a guide really for formal leaders that are mentoring other people. Perhaps it's part of the mentoring program in their company. And so it's called the ultimate mentoring guide. And each chapter is really explaining the different role that mentors play, kind of a sequence. Some are simultaneous, you know, the, the soberest, the closer, the optimist, the archivist, the revealer. And so I've identified 15 formal roles that mentors, I think, should be playing. And so it's, it's, a, it's a funny book. 
It's a practical book. I think it'll be more of a book that people buy inside organizations as they're asked to be a mentor. I could see a lot of companies buying this book for all of their mentors, and I'm developing a, a course around it as well that companies can buy. So stand by for the ultimate mentoring guide. After that, in October, comes a new book out called Ignite Your Genius. It's a book based on my career coaching course on 11 steps that I've I've mastered with some um, with some uh, growing pains on how to create a very deliberate career. I think a lot of our careers are too accidental, right? No career is a perfect straight path. It's a lot of serendipity, but I think careers are way too accidental. And I have a formula to help people create more of a deliberate career. So that comes out in the fall, Ignite Your Genius. And then of course, Master Mentors Volume 3. And then I'll take a week break. <laughs> and come back on your podcast, hopefully. <laughs> I Thanks hope so as well. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks. It's always an honor. Honor to be your friend. Thanks.